Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Welcome back to the National Football Show. Dan Cilio, top of the hour. We will talk to one of the greatest NFL Hall of Famers of all time, Mike Haynes. Legendary career with the Patriots and also with the Raiders. College Football Hall of Famer, and we will get his perspective. We asked Ice Cube the question, you cool with the Raiders being in Las Vegas? And how, how do you see your career? You were a former Rookie of the Year and Defensive Player of the Year in New England. And then you turned around and had a second half of your Hall of Fame career with the Raiders where you won those championships. Do you see yourself as a Patriot, or do you see yourself as a Raider? We'll talk to one of the greatest Pro Football Hall of Famers as we're getting closer and closer to the induction ceremonies of the Hall of Fame next month. I mean, we're getting ready for the game. Players are going to be reporting to show up for the Hall of Fame game. I, I want to say maybe another month I should add that. It's around the 26th, I think, that they're going to be playing the Hall of Fame game, Steelers and Cowboys. So we will talk to Mike Haynes. That'll be at the top of the hour. You know, I, I, I kind of disagree a little bit with Jason Cole on Lamar Jackson representing himself. And here's why. Okay, you're seeing the money that's now being guaranteed to these players now, especially at the quarterback position. If you're Lamar Jackson, would you do this? And by the way, 6 million bucks is 6 million bucks if we're talking about 3%. Okay. And if I could put that back into my family's pocket or into my pocket, and I just say this, Hey, look, I love the Baltimore Raven organization and the Raven organization. And I are going to get together here. We're going to put a deal together. And I like playing here. I want to stay here. I want to end my career here. Man, that's really good faith. I think that speaks to Steve Biscotti, the owner of the Ravens, and how he has an environment in that building that players revere playing for that franchise. I'm going to put this out there about the Ravens. I think the Ravens are one of the greatest organizations in the league that players, everybody that I've ever spoken to, have enjoyed playing there. And it's something in the building. Maybe it's John Harbaugh. Maybe it was Brian Billick. But it's got to be the fact that ownership and Ozzie Newsom put the chemistry in the building and the culture in the building that made it a family atmosphere as long as you produce. Because let's be candid here. Anybody and everybody can like somebody. But if you're not producing, it doesn't matter how much I like you. Okay? If you're not producing, in your respected field, your boss is going to tap you on the shoulder eventually and say, bring your playbook. It's just going to happen. So what, hey, watch this. Jimmy Johnson cut me. It was the hardest thing for him to ever do. You know what I think of you. You know how much I like you. No, strike that. You know how much I love you. So this has got more to do with this. And I was like, and I didn't speak to him for 10 years. <laughs> okay. But I, I, I got it. Didn't really matter. Now, with all that being said, I bring in my friend here, and I got to tell you guys, truly one of the greatest men, not only one of the greatest football players that I have ever run into and have become dear friends with, is my friend Mike Keynes, and he joins us now here on the National Football Show. How you doing, Mike? I'm doing great. Can you hear me okay? Oh, all good, man. Loud and clear, man. Loud okay, and clear. Great. You look great. I'm doing great, Dan. Hey, I got to show you something. I compare you to this man. 
Oh, he's the better man. He's the better man. <laughs> Leroy, I love him. I have never in my life, Mike, met a guy that I used to say this to. You were unblockable in the NFL, and you're a better man, he goes. That's the greatest compliment I've ever got. Is that you think I go, yeah, but you were so dominant. <laughs> you know, I think it's his his uh, his whole family. Every male in that family was awesome. So if, if he was a top dog in that family, it meant a lot. That's it right. Really Dewey, Luscious, and Leroy, man. Those guys yeah. all played at OU. And actually, I think they all played in the NFL too, didn't they? Yeah, they did. Yeah. <laughs> hey, hey, Mike, so I'm I, – okay, I, I met – now, do you have two boys now that are in college? Uh, one just graduated from BC, and one's a senior in high, going into a senior year in high school. So I met the kid from BC. You brought him into my studio before, yeah. and now you've got another kid now who's going on the recruiting. This has got to be heaven for you right now. Well, I don't know if our family is as good as the Selman family, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know we have a pretty athletic family. I have two daughters also, and um, they're pretty athletic as well. You know what, Mike? I I I have a daughter now who's uh, playing Division One uh, rugby in um, at Grand Canyon University. She's like now on scholarship there. How don't you give and overgive advice? I don't know how you say it. How 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 do you sit back and not give the kids advice because you want these guys to be their own men? But how do you do you wait for them to come to you? No, what I do is I say it all starts with mindset. It all starts with your goals. If you really are good at setting goals and have good goals, they'll drive you to asking questions. They'll drive you to eating better, working out harder, not being happy with where you are, all that. But uh, if you just show up and you don't care, have, you know, like a lot of kids just don't care, uh, it can be difficult. And I've been trying to do that with all of my kids and uh, and I and I realized that I still have to do. I have to do it in other parts of my life. In football and track, I was pretty good at it. Uh, but in in life and trying to uh, you know be a, a a good contributor to our community and things like that, I have to really work on that. Mike, what has being a Hall of Famer meant to you in your life since that day that you were inducted into the Hall of Fame in Canton? What, is it, what has it done for you? Has it changed you in any way? Has it added something to your life? What is that moment, and how did that moment mean to you? Well, I, I think the way it changed me is I realized I was a role model now, you know, and maybe I've always been one ever since I was a kid, but, um, but I was a role model, and so and the experiences that I have and the lessons that I learned from my own life. And if I think they're worthwhile, I try and get out there and encourage other people to do the same kind of thing. As an example, uh, my, my diagnosis with prostate cancer, like almost 15 years ago now, you know, I always said, you know, Hey, I'm only going to live to be 60, you know, something like that. Uh, and then with the prostate cancer, I realized, I never had any goals with regard to how long I wanted to live. Uh, and so well, when I had the prostate cancer, I, I said, you know what? I'm going to set a ridiculous goal. I'm going to live to be 125, <laughs> you know, 125. Now I know I'm not going to make it to 125, but I might make it to 122. <laughs> <laughs> and so it, it's changed the way I eat. Uh, it, you know, when I sleep, like I realize I need more sleep. I, I want to be in good health, so I, I work out more. Um, I'm on my kids also about, you know, what you're eating, because when you're young and you're eating a lot of junk, but then 30 years later, now you got a big old gut and, you know, big old butt and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, you want to, you want to start setting those kind of goals when you're young. And a lot of times you don't have to because you're an athlete. You want to be good at your sport. And there's a certain weight you want to have, a certain look you want to have. But... Um, you know, my health is really important. And, and uh, that experience I had with cancer, it changed me. And, and, and I set some goals on how long I wanted to live. And now most of my life, I'm, I'm talking to health organizations. I'm getting involved with those kind of things, trying to help other people uh, come to the same conclusion. 
I'm definitely going to hit more up on that. But I, you bring up a great point, Mike, that, you know, when we're younger and we're going through the process of playing pro ball or playing any kind of organized ball, man, you don't care about what your age is going to be, how, how long you're going to live. You don't right. really care about your 60s and 70s. I would imagine that that is a transition that all players struggle through because that's a transition, isn't it, Mike? You're, you go from going like this, I don't care what happens to me 10 years from now, let me just make this football team. And that's all you care about. So that evolution for you, probably did it change right away, right after you left? Or was it the cancer diagnosis that really changed the way you think? It was really the cancer. I mean, it was um, supposedly there's some kind of machine up in Orange County here where you can go stand in front of this machine and it can detect all these different illnesses that you could have or will have and things like that. When someone invited me to come, I said, man, I don't want to know. Are you kidding? I don't want to know. I just <laughs> right. want to live my life and enjoy my life. But once I was diagnosed with this prostate cancer, first of all, I did not have a symptom. So I was, I was what they call asymptomatic. And, um, but when I found out I had it and I realized I found out that um, it was something that I could do something about because we found out about it early, I could get treatment for it. When I thought, geez, I mean, if I hadn't have gotten that treatment, I probably wouldn't even be here today, you know? Uh, so I, I, that changed my life. And that's what I try to get other people to do. Young people, uh, even people my age. I see some of my old teammates. You can't even believe those guys were wide receivers. My goodness, you know, they're huge. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're huge. Um, you know, and, and I talked to him about it. And so like, you know, hey man, there's diabetes, there's hypertension, there's all these different things. We're all going to get a little arthritis because of our sport, I'm sure. Um, but, you know, there's things that you can do to, you know, to escape that. You don't have to get those things. You take care, you eat, you change your diet. You may not even have these arth arthritic pain, you know, all that stuff. So I'm getting educated and I figure I'll be getting educated for a long time to come. I have a friend going into the Hall of Fame this summer and I'm going to be there when everybody's able to get together. I think it's going to be great to see everybody um, there at that fabulous building. And it's going to be Jimmy Johnson. What's that like, Mike, when you walk up on stage and you tell your story? Because to me, I love the stories because every guy that's in that building and really every guy that's ever played has a different journey. We're like, I think, and I tell people, we're like leaves on a tree. Everyone's got a different story and how we got to where we were able to do something that very few people have ever been able to do, and that's play in the NFL. And then there's certain guys that have even fewer that get a chance to go into that building wearing a gold jacket. What's, what was that like for you? I've never asked you this when you stepped up on that stage. Well, it, it's, a, it's an unbelievable feeling, first of all, you know, just to be, just to be you know, voted in and uh, to know that you're Hall of Famer, to be with the other guys. Uh, but when you're, once you get to know them, you realize – all of them were, all have similar stories. They overcame something, you know, um, and, and that's the amazing thing. Like, you know, maybe you thought you were going to be a lineman and you end up being a quarterback or you were a quarterback and you end up being a lineman, you know, um, it, it's just, just amazing. And a lot of them are heartwarming stories, you know, because guys come from poor backgrounds and they really struggled and their, their parents really, did all they could to get them into this school. And there was, you know, no one knew what the outcome was going to be, but man, it turned out for them. And they, and the parent is the first person they give thanks to for in the audience. I want to thank my mom who worked three jobs and uh, you know, all these different things to provide for us and all that. So it's, it's um, I love it because I get to meet these guys and hang with these guys a little bit. And so when I get to go out and do some public speaking or, or speak to young people, I use one of their experiences to help motivate somebody else. You know, like, oh, you're not a good student? Well, let me tell you about a guy I know who's in the Hall of Fame. He wasn't a good student, but he wasn't a good student because he didn't care about anything. And then he started caring, something happened in his life, and I told him what happened, you know? And I said, and it changed his life. And, and now he's, you know, he's in the Hall of Fame. He's turned out to be a great football player, and he used his experiences to help other people. And I think that's what most of the Hall of Famers are doing. Um, you know, I think we all realize that we wouldn't be in the Hall of Fame um, with, without the help of other people, people who came into our lives and, you know, um, straightened us out sometimes, helped us overcome something. Um, 
you know, um, teammates who educated us a little bit and gave us some information. Everybody used to think that, um, you know, if you're a great player, you hold your secrets, you don't tell anybody, you know, <laughs> but, but we all share our secrets, you know, whatever made me great, I tell everybody, you know, um, and, uh, and hope that there'll be someone that's gonna, you know, shatter all the records I ever had and ever made. And I think we're all like that, you know, we're not really selfish, we're really giving people. We realize that we wouldn't be where we are, had the lives that we had, um, if not for the, the, uh, the good fortune of others as well. You know, Mike, you, you, your career, and maybe I'm looking at it wrong and straighten me out if I am looking at it wrong. It seems to be two different careers, your Patriot career and your Raider career. And somehow I look at two different Mike Haynes's. I look at the, maybe it's because <laughs> it's the, it, you know, it's the reputation of the Raiders and, you know, back, no disrespect to the Sullivan family. The team wasn't as consistently winning like the Raider organization was back in the day. And it's like two different Mike Haynes. Is that how you see how you look at yourself too with your career? Or do you have it all in one ball? Because I, it, it just looks like two different Mike Haynes. Yeah, no, I, I don't see it that way, but uh, I can see how other people might see it that way. But a lot of things have changed. Like football has changed, you know, um, the game has changed. So um, when I was on the Patriots, I don't really think the Patriots really wanted to go to the Super Bowl and be a dominant team every year because they'd have to pay out incentive bonuses all the time and they wouldn't get to make as much money as they could make. You know, uh, Al Davis didn't care about the money for him. It was win, baby, win. That's it. I just want to win. And uh, and he didn't mind paying out the bonuses. So, it was, you know, two different things. And so everything starts at the top. So if, if they don't want to win at the top, too bad for you. You're probably not going to win. And um, they're going to trade away your good players. Um, you know, they're going to not care if this guy gets the salary that he deserves. You know, if he wants to sit out the whole year, got to sit out the whole year. But football has changed. Now, the, you know, there's way more money in, in football, so they can afford to pay the big bonuses now. And so I, I just look at it as a business. After, you know, coming in and playing three or four years, you see it as a business and you understand what's actually happening. Uh, and, and that's what I did. And I was really good friends with the Sullivan family and um, still, I haven't seen them now in, in, in quite a while, but we ended on a good note. We had, we had some spats, but when I realized it was a business and I realized that a lot of things that they did were for business reasons, not because they wanted to do, you know, treat me bad or whatever. Um, it's really, they just didn't know what else to do. They had to do something for their franchise, for their business. And Al was just a different kind of person. Um, he'd bring in a guy who was having trouble with the team like me, <laughs> or he'd bring in uh, you know, a lot of guys uh, from other teams that might not have been working out at, at their other place. And, we, and, he, and he just made us feel at home, you know, like this is home, baby, you know, and just felt like uh, it was a good feeling. And I think all of us, uh, I think everybody that has a chance to play on the Raiders is probably grateful that they got a chance to play for Al and play for the Raiders. Uh, I know I was, I just, I felt like if not for them, I don't know that I ever would have played in a Super Bowl. And when I was drafted to the Patriots, I thought I'd played a ton of Super Bowls, but we kept trading away our good players. Leon Gray, uh, we had the best offensive line, they trade him away, had the best tight end in football and Russ Francis, they trade him away. You know, they trade away Sam Cunningham, our great running back. You know, we just kept getting weaker and weaker, you know? Uh, and then uh, remember, they traded away Jim Plunkett. And if not for Jim Plunkett, I don't think my Raider, I would have had a Super Bowl. <laughs> you know. So um, so anyway, it's it's been a great experience for me um, playing in both places. And I'm, I'm glad that both franchises really have been dominant franchises in, you know, the last, you know, 25, 30 years. So you look at yourself as a Raider. Well, for me, I look at myself. It depends on where I am when, when you ask. <laughs> I just got back from New England today. <laughs> I hey, I there. asked Ice Cube this question yesterday. I'll ask you. Are you cool with the Raiders being in Vegas? Oh, heck yeah. I, I, I you know, I'm actually thinking about moving to Vegas. Are you kidding? <laughs> because of them, you know? Because, you know, if you're a football fan, and you live in Tennessee, you're a ten Tennessee Titan fan, and you want to go to an away game, which one are you going to go to? Vegas. <laughs> you know, if you're in, I don't care where you are, you know, 
that's the game that I think the, the, the home team wants to travel with their team to see, um, they, be there with the city. And uh, I love it. I mean, they love sports there and uh, there's a lot to do and the, the lights are always on. Um, I think it's great. And, I, you know, there was a time when I thought that there was going to be too many challenges for the players um, being there. Maybe it's not a good idea, um, but I, you know, I've been there now and I, I really feel like that those days have passed. There are going to be some things that their guys are going to have to think twice about before they, you know, before they get involved. But I think it's good. I think it's good for football. I think also it's you know, international fans will come like, you know, should. Oh, I love my favorite team, um, the New Orleans Saints. Um, no, that's probably not a good city. I love my favorite team, uh, Houston, you know, um, but I'm living in England. I'm going to wait until they play the Raiders in Las Vegas, and I'm going to that game, you know. I'm going to go support my team over there, yeah. yeah. So I think it's good for football, and I think, um, you know, the, the Raiders are really smart to move there. Um you know, Mark, Mark Davis, I, I see him from time to time. He's excited about the fans there, and it's starting to build there. They just now have to put, put it together, get in the playoffs and do well in the playoffs and get, get it rolling again. Finally here, Mike, do me a favor so everyone knows that your number one passion right now outside of your family, obviously, is prostate uh, cancer prevention and the things that people can do, websites and everything, and 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 basically maybe a brief synopsis on why you think it's so important for people, especially guys our age, that are starting to get up there past the age of forty-five. That maybe it's time for them to go in there and take a check because, like you said, you didn't even know that you had something inside you that potentially could, you know, give issues down the line. Here, how could people get involved in this? Well, um, now that I've I've set a goal to live to be 125 <laughs> and, and uh, I've actually added to my goal. So I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to encourage people to know their family history and, um, and, and really know it. And it's not easy to know your family history sometimes, especially for African-Americans. Uh, you know, we've had some tough times in our lives in our American history. And it's, it's tough to travel back and I know our real family history, but, but it's important to know it. Uh, and uh, as African-American man, I was more likely to get prostate cancer. I didn't know that. Um, and, and so if you catch it and deal with it when it's treatable, there's a good chance you're going to be fine. But so now I'm into diagnostic testing that that uh, like for the heart, there's a, a company called Pulse for Pulse that I'm working with now uh, and they do cardio uh, testing. And, you know, and so. If you have a, a heart problem in your family and you know that your dad or your mom or, you know, has had a heart problem and you're good chance you're going to have a heart problem. But you're going to if you wait until you have symptoms, that might be too late. And if you don't know your family history, um, you, you know, you, there, there's got to be a way for you to find out about it. So these tests, these diagnostic tests that you can take now, they can give you all that information. You can change your diet. You can start exercising more. You can start getting more sleep, you can stop smoking, you know, you can stop eating the sweets and stuff like that. That's what I'm trying to do now is more, more of a, a goal to live a long, healthier life lifestyle. One of my favorite people on the planet, you know that Mike, thank you so much for doing this. Um, hopefully I see you at the hall of fame. I know I'll always see you at the Super Bowl. We'll catch up again and tell your kid, man, the journey's really a cool one. Sit back and watch it and enjoy it. As you know, Mike, it's a fun yeah. ride when, you know, schools want you to come and play for them. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you, Dan. Appreciate you, man. Always, man. Mike Haynes, one of the truly greatest football players in the history of the National Football League. We'll catch up with Gary Myers, the former New York Times and best-selling author at the bottom of the hour. We'll ask him about the New York Giants. We'll do all that next. You keep it right here on the National Football Show. I get scared sometimes. Of a lot of things. Joining in. Decisions. The dark. The dark. But I once heard someone say. But as I always say. It's okay to be afraid. As long as you face the fear. And keep moving forward. Wherever you are in life, count on the name trusted in insurance for over 80 years. Independence Blue Cross. Ah, the savoring taste of a good bag of beef jerky is so enjoyable at any time of the day, as long as you can find it. Here's what we suggest. 
Pure Bull Beef Jerky is our answer, and soon it will be yours. Locally produced in the Philadelphia region, this high-quality, healthy protein snack is easy to secure. Go to Steersnacks.com, and you'll see hot garlic, tropical heat, Pure Bull Dry Rub, and our favorite, Huck and Fod. What's that? Huck and Fod. Go now to Steersnacks.com. Welcome to the Wildwoods, the perfect place where you can safely do everything or nothing at all. Catch a wave, take a nap, go for a drive, grab a bite. It's your vacation, and we're doing everything we can to make it a safe one. The Wildwoods, your vacation, your way. The International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local Union 98, is a proud sponsor of The Labor Show with J. Doc and Krause every Saturday night from 6 to 8 p.m. IBEW Local 98's highly trained and superbly skilled electricians are the best in the business, setting the highest safety standards in the electrical industry. So when you're planning your next industrial, commercial, or residential project, choose an IBEW Local 98 union contractor. Learn more at IBEW98.org. Field of life. First Trust Bank is there for you. Because Philadelphia dreams deserve a Philadelphia bank. This is a key. It's a family tree. It's a pair of wings. It's a secret handshake. And a ticket to anywhere in the world. It's more than a uniform. It's the door to a world most people only dream of. There's strong, and then there's Army strong. Try it on at GoArmy.com. Welcome back. National Football Show. Your boy, Dan Celio. We'll catch up with Gary Miders, noted author at the bottom of the hour. And Hall of Fame voter. We only get Hall of Fame voters on the National Football Show. You will rarely see a dude that if he doesn't have a vote to put a guy into Canton on this program, I, I can promise you that. I want people that go like this, check, no check, okay? I, I want the guys that make the decision on who the greatest players in the history of the National Football League are because the guys that we put on, that are Hall of Fame voters are caretakers of the sport. And they take their vote, unlike the baseball guys. I'll tell you the difference between a Hall of Fame voter when it comes to football and baseball. Let me tell you this. The Baseball Hall of Fame voters, they use it as a political vehicle. And what I mean by that is, if you're here, and this will probably rub people the wrong way when I say this, if you don't think Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens are Hall of Famers, you don't have a Hall of Fame. Steroids were a part of baseball. You can't get around it. But what baseball tries to do, baseball tries to change their history. There were no testing for anabolic steroids or for PEDs. You had no testing at any time. You barely tested for amphetamines. And so all of a sudden, there was this gigantic outcry. Oh, my God, these guys are taking PEDs, and they're changing the rules of the game, and they're changing the way the game is being perceived. That came from the sports writers in baseball. Yeah, You ever notice when somebody like Sean Merriman or anybody gets busted for PEDs, nobody cares. The media, they're the ones that change the narrative in this. Pro football fans or fans of football, they don't care. I think most fans assume that there's something involved with some time of performance-enhancing drugs that keep these guys going. I think you think the public's stupid. But see, the baseball writer, what he does? Well, Barry Bonds has changed the integrity of the sport. 
What are you a doctor? How do you know what he did? And for the record, do you know what they got bonds on and why they're keeping him out? Obstruction of justice. You know what that meant? Barry Bonds spent 30 days in his mansion with an ankle bracelet on because, get this, he, he they said that he perjured himself with some innocuous comment that he made. And it had nothing to do with actually why the federal government was trying to get Bonds. And they spent $35 million prosecuting him. And they got him on house arrest. And so you know what baseball has done? They've castrated Bonds in the court of public opinion. Are you trying to tell me that you don't think people prior to Barry Bonds was taking some type of drug in this sport? That goes all the way back to Reggie, Willie Mays, all of those guys. You don't think there was something that people were doing back then. I think people think that professional sports sometimes is all about kissing cheerleaders and cashing paychecks. You're crazy, man. There's a dark side to sports and it's drugs. You know, every time I hear somebody go, well, Bonds had the cream. Really? You think putting cream on your arm made you hit 72 home runs? What a dope. I mean, do you really think that steroids made Bonds the player? Bonds was stealing 60 bases when he was a pirate. Barry Bonds is the only guy to have 500 home runs and 500 stolen bases. Actually, it's 762. And Bonds is north of 500 in stolen bases. You'll never see that in baseball history. But they exiled him from the sport his final season. He was 35 hits away from 3,000. They didn't want Bonds to own every record. Bonds is the greatest player I have ever covered. I've never seen anything like it. And the second closest guy I was fortunate, I worked in the Bay Area. Ricky Henderson was the other guy. 1,400 stolen bases. You'll never see anybody do anything like that again either. People don't steal bases today, okay? This guy was stealing over 100 bases. Tremendous, tremendous player. Bonds is the greatest. But see, the baseball writer does this. Well, you know, steroids and, you know, Bonds, Bonds cheated. Bonds cheated. Okay, so who cares Bonds cheated? You don't think we're smart enough as consumers and sports fans to go like this. Oh, Bonds was playing during the steroid era. Okay. Or that Pete Rose was playing and everyone knows. And by the way, the thing with Pete Rose not being in the Hall of Fame, I never got that. Okay, so he was kicked out of the sport because he was cheating as a manager. Well, he wasn't a Hall of Fame manager. How can you keep him out and that Hall of Fame baseball career that he had? Do you have any evidence that he was gambling when he was playing? And if so, how come that hasn't come to light? Do you have any evidence that he was cheating as a player when he was playing for the Reds? Or that he was throwing games in any way? Isn't it funny now how people are looking at gambling now and that they're talking about putting a sports book at Wrigley Field? And this was this is like a way for all these organizations now to make money, extra money now is professional gambling. And you're going to have like prop bets that are going to be made, especially at a baseball park. Are you kidding me? Will a guy get a hit this inning? Will he hit a home run this inning? You're going to be able to have more prop bets in that sport than any other sport. I think the NFL is going to benefit a lot from it, but I do think that baseball is going to prosper so much from having professional gambling because then get this. You're not just going to be sitting there eating hot dogs and drinking beer for four hours. You're going to actually be able to make prop bets when you're sitting there. So I think baseball is going to definitely have an advantage here when it comes to having gambling. Now, back to the Hall of Fame, though. But, I mean, there's the difference. The NFL guy, he looks at numbers, his impact. Was he a dominant player? And you can hear the guys every time that we get them on. They're talking about the performance inside the hash marks. Then they'll bring up the guy's character. It's what kept T.O. out of the Hall of Fame as a first ballot. There's no doubt. Was it right? No. Maybe one of the only political times that I ever saw that vote really used. Is T.O. a first ballot Hall of Famer? Of course he is. Of course he is. But he was... T.O., do you know why T.O. didn't go in on the first ballot? Because T.O. had bad relationships with the people that were covering him.
Now, should that be part of the equation? No, but it's human nature. If you have a bad relationship with someone, do you really think they're going to put you in a good light when you're relying on them to do something for you? Do you think they're just going to go, hey, bygones will be bygones? That's not how human nature works. People are scoreboard keepers. You do something that's not cool, you're going to have to have collateral damage to that, and eventually it'll come back. And that's what the Hall of Fame voters do. The Hall of Fame voters will hold a grudge against you, and some of them do. And by the way, they're not going to not put you in, but they're going to send a message to you. And that's what they did to Terrell Owens. I mean, was it right? Well, hey, man, everything in that sport is about relationships. The thing that I have a problem with the baseball guys, they're acting like they're pharmacists and doctors. They had no idea what those PEDs were doing. Doctors can tell you, but get this. And, you know, people always tell me this when, you know, I bring this up to them. Lyle Alzado didn't die from steroid use, folks. Lyle Alzado died from an enlarged heart. Okay. Was it brought on and accelerated his case? Probably. Because if it grows muscle, it also grows a tumor inside you. Absolutely. Okay. But to sit there and say that that was a direct cause, you can't prove that stuff. And I have debated this with people and especially sports writers. The football sports writer who has a Hall of Fame vote, those guys do such a great job at putting all the names in a book and actually do everything when it comes to evaluating. And that being said here, let's bring in one of my friends here, Gary Myers. And I'll tell you what, Gary is one of those guys that will tell you flat out. Gary, I've said this to you before. You guys do such a great job at the Hall of Fame and how you guys look at all of these players. And I, I, I just wonder, after all these years, how you still look at that vote when it comes to looking at a particular player on being named to the Hall of Fame. Asking me how how we judge the players? Is yes, yes. Well, I mean, I mean, just speaking, you know, my, my own, you know, personal standards. You know, you look for, you know, first if if they make it to the final fifteen, which is when we discuss them in the Hall of Fame meeting room, um, you have to assume they're all eligible, not eligible, they're all qualified to be Hall of Famers because if you make it to the final fifteen then you've been a great player because it's just so hard to get to that spot. And then I, I just try to make my decision on in that particular year, who I think the five guys are who just really stood out and, you know, had those incredibly special careers that separates them a little bit from the other 10 candidates that year. But I think history has shown that, Dan, if um, if you make it to the final 15, eventually you're going to get in. It might not be the next year. It might be another three years. But just the way the process works, you know, there's usually one or two guys that get in um, a year who are first time first year eligibles. So the, the players who finish, say, six through 10 the year before, there's openings for four of them to move up into that you know, one through five spot in, in the following year. So um, it, it's hard to get in. But again, if you get to the final 15, um, chances are you're eventually going to get in. But I, I listen, I, I know how hard it is for these guys to um, be so excited about the possibility of getting in. And then when it doesn't happen, they have to wait a, another year just to try to get back to that spot. I have a question for you, and I want to show you this here. And I show you all the New York guys this. As you know, my uncle's Randy Robustelli. Yeah. And here is his induction jersey into the giant ring of honor when he went into the giant ring of honor. And I happen to be friends with Mark Gastineau. And over there, he gave me a picture of the New York Sack Exchange signed by everybody. Klecko, Abdul Salam, Marty Lyons, and Gastineau. And I, I, I've been having a debate with some of the other Hall of Famers, Rick Goslin, Jason Cole, and Howard Balzer on this. And I look at Mark Gaston and I go, if you think J.J. Watt is a Hall of Famer, how don't you think the original sack dance guy, Mark Gaston, is not? 
Now, I know his personality wasn't really redeeming to many sports writers, and that's kind of maybe where I was going, Gary. I mean, obviously, the relationship with sports writers sometimes goes into how you evaluate people. But, I mean, how's Mark Gassino never been evaluated as a potential Hall of Famer when he's a two-time defensive player of the year? He's the only other guy other than Reggie White that had a sack in every game that he played. How is he not considered for the Hall of Fame? Well, I mean, first of all, I think you you have to answer the question, why isn't Joe Klecko in the Hall of Fame? Because I think those people that were around the Jets for all those years on the sack exchange would have said that Klecko was, was a better player than Gastineau. Mark was um, obviously um, – a prolific sack guy, but not so good, not so much against the run. And um, I, I think that Klecko certainly has a better chance of getting in than Mark. You think I Joe would, more complete, right? Uh, Joe was more complete player. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Joe, first of all, Joe made the pro bowl at three different positions, which, you know, is, is unusual and, and extraordinary. I wasn't aware of that stat that you just said that Gasno got a sack in every game he played. Counting his playoffs. Every, every game he played in his career, he had at least yes. one sack? Yes, and remember, prior to the 19, I think, 81 or 82 year, Gary, they didn't keep the sack as an official statistic. Right. Right. So I'm going off the Jet stats that year, those years previous to when he was in the sport, they put that number, and I put his postseason together, and Mark would have had a sack in every game. The only other guy to do that is Reggie. Um, well, that, that and I wasn't even aware that Reggie White had a sack in there. I mean, yeah. that's, that's incredible. I know. You, <laughs> um, I mean, I'll take your word for that one. I, that that would mean like Reggie White would have had a minimum of sixteen sacks every year that he played. Yeah. Um, Remember the one year though when he came on, there was a strike year. He had twenty. I think it was either twenty some odd sacks in only eight games that he played that year that was a strike year when he came out of the USFL and he was in that supplemental, he played like eight games and he had 20 sacks that season. He was and plus you had the postseason and what he did in there. And so, yeah, yeah just, I, I wouldn't put Reggie White and Mark Gaston. No, I wouldn't stand, either. So. And, and no. you, you can make numbers do any, you know, you can make them dance any way you want, you know? <laughs> so. Absolutely. Let me get into the giants now. Are you a fan of Coach Judge and what's going on with the New York Giants? Yeah, I, I think that, um, first of all, I think the players like him. And as you know, as a former player, that you don't have to be a player's best friend, but you also don't have to, you know, be their enemy. And, you know, part of the problem with all these um, Belichick assistants have been, you know, for too too much, they've, they, they've tried to be Belichick without having the resume that Belichick has. So we saw that with Eric Mangini. I think we saw that with Bill O'Brien, you know, with, with a number of guys who have been the Belichick disciples who haven't been as uh, successful as we would have anticipated. I, I think Judge has – he has some Belichick in him, but I, I think he's an has an outward compassionate side to him that you never really see from Belichick. I'm not saying that Belichick isn't that way – you know, behind closed doors. But um, I think with Belichick, it's it's kind of, you know, what you see is what you get, no matter what the circumstances are. So even though the Giants got off to an 0-5 start with Judge last year, uh, the players never quit on him. And they wound up finishing 6-10, and which is not great, obviously. I mean, they, they nearly won the horrific NFC East. But just the fact that you can start 0-5 and then win six of your last 11 games – I think it's a pretty good indication that the players, you know, kept playing hard for a rookie coach. And I think that really uh, is a good indication of that the arrow is pointing up for the Giants. Are you a fan of Daniel Jones? You know, I, I his numbers went down from year one to year two, which is really unusual. Uh, he's had some injury problems the first two years. I've seen enough of him. I've seen enough good things from the first two years that if they can finally get his biggest problem under control, which is turning over the football, but too many interceptions and way too many lost fumbles, if they can get past that, I think he can be a playoff quarterback. I haven't seen enough yet to say he's going to ever be elite or he'll ever win a Super Bowl. 
but I've seen enough to think if they can get the turnovers under control, that they can win with him, especially in a division now that seems to be at least a year or two away from having a team that could be considered serious Super Bowl contenders. I mean, the NFC East right now is putrid. And I don't know that it got much better in the offseason. I mean, somebody will win the division at 9-7 and seven this year instead of, you know, 7-9 or nine that Washington did. But the opportunity is certainly there for Jones. The Giants are completely committed to him. They never thought about taking a quarterback in this past draft. They never thought about signing a veteran that can compete with him in training camp. I mean, it's all on him. But he really has to do it uh, this year. Because I don't think um, – he can st- he can flat you know be on the same plane uh, in year three as he was in year two, and expect the Giants to be fully committed to him in year four. Uh, usually, a jump from my experience watching this and covering it is that quarterbacks make the jump from year one to two. He didn't do that, so he, now he you know the pressure is really on for him to make it from year two to year three. Gary, you've covered so many teams in New York um, with the Jets and Giants and. Explain to me what, you know, I, I called the jets. They're basically the NFL's landfill for quarterbacks. I mean, even Joe Namath was destroyed at the end of his career when he left New York. I mean, you know, Namath couldn't stand even the punishment that he took there. And God knows if he was in a better organization, what could have happened with some of his numbers as well. And it's been just a cast of guys that we thought were going to be the next guy, just a cast of coaches. Why hasn't it ever, I mean, outside of a couple spotty years, why hasn't it ever worked for the Jets? Is it really ownership? That's a great question. And if if anybody knew the answer to that, (laughs) they would make the fixes to it. But, I mean, you're right. I mean, they change coaches. They change general managers. They change quarterbacks. They just gave up on the second pick and the third pick in the draft. Sam Donald, who, who only played three years from them for them, and now they're going to start over with another rookie quarterback. Uh, Adam Gase only lasted two years, which was about two years too long. Um, I, I like the leadership they have now with Joe Douglas and Robert Sala. Um, the reports from Zach Wilson at at the OTAs and minicamp were, were positive, but you know how much you know credence can you really put in that? I don't know why it's been um, – it's where careers go to die. You come to the Jets and your career kind of – whether you're a veteran or a rookie, it just doesn't seem that it's worked out, you know, especially for quarterbacks. Mark Sanchez makes the AFC Championship game his first two years in the league but was criticized those two years because he really didn't play well until the playoffs. And then his career fell apart the next couple of years. And, Dan – those are looked as the good old days for the Jets now. <laughs> and, you know, I don't know. Like I said, I, I like the leadership that they have now. I think the, the rookie quarterback who looks like he's about 12 years old, um, he's got a great arm. We know it takes more than that. But, you know, he's a gym rat, which is always a good sign. And he studies hard and he wants to be great. Uh, and we'll see what happens. But, you know, we've heard – you know, we've been down this road before with the Jets so many times. I, I, I feel like I'm hearing a like you, you do this. Let's see if he's this. Let's see if he's that. Let's see. It's like I'm like rubbing on a genie lamp. <laughs> yeah, really. I mean, it's <laughs> it, it, the Jets are a train wreck and they've been that way uh, for probably over 50 years now. You know, you mentioned about Namath. Um, Back then, nobody thought the Jets were dysfunctional. I mean, they won a Super Bowl, but you know, and Joe will forever be a hero in New York City for that. But you know that he threw more interceptions yeah. than touchdowns in his career. I think he's got a losing record too as a starting quarterback. He, he might, he might, and but the fact that you know he was the quarterback in, in probably the, the greatest upset in sports history, you know, for, has forever ingratiated him with all Jet fans and, you know, pretty much New York football fans. But after that, you know, starting with Richard Todd, who the Jets thought they were getting another Namath because he came from Alabama and he was a first-round pick, you know, pretty much starting with Richard Todd, it's just been, like we've said, a parade of rookies and veterans and guys from other teams. Um, 
who've just been incredibly disappointing. I mean, some of the biggest names when you think of it, Brett Favre mm. was here and um, Vinny and, and, you know, Vinny had a great one season for them yeah. in 1998 with, with Parcells. They were up 10, nothing early in the third quarter, the AFC championship game against Elway and the Broncos. And they lost 23 to 10. Um, Favre had him at, uh, uh, I believe it was seven and two in 2008 and they finished nine and seven and, uh, and missed the playoffs. And, um, uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick had a great year for them where, um, Brandon Marshall and, um, and Eric Decker were a thousand yard receivers in the same season. The first time that ever happened for the jets to go into Buffalo with a chance to make the playoffs in Todd Bowles, first year. And, Fitz throws, I think, either two interceptions on the last two possessions or the last three possessions. They lose to the Bills, and they miss the playoffs. The Jets haven't made the playoffs since 2010. And, you know, that's hard to do in the NFL now to go a full decade without making the playoffs because everybody, you know, the, the, the parity with, with the draft and everybody's got a chance to sign free agents. It's really hard to go 10 years without making the playoffs, but the Jets have done it. I, two questions here, and one of them is going to be on what you're doing now. I'm sure we're you're working on another masterpiece. I love your books, and I love your stories that you put together. I'll get to that here in a second. But tell me if you subscribe to where I'm going to go here with Belichick. I heard this story from a couple people inside the giant organization, and I'm wondering if you subscribe to this. I think one of the biggest regrets in Bill Belichick's career is that he was never the New York Giants head football coach, and here's why. That, you know, when they gave the job to Ray Handley, if people remember correctly, it was just a few weeks after the fact that Belichick had accepted the Cleveland Browns job and all of a sudden Parcells then resigns for health issues and they give it to Ray Handley before they even had contacted and let him know that there was a potential that Parcells was going to step down. He takes the job in um, Cleveland. That doesn't turn out well because of the quarterback fiasco between Bernie and Vinny there. Then he goes up to New England, has the great success. I've always thought he's always flirted with that job at potentially being the giant head football coach. Gary, do you agree with that? Yes, and uh, a couple of years ago when there was a story about all that dysfunction in the Patriots organization, I, I wrote a story, and the Giants were looking for a head coach, and they wound up hiring Pat Shermer. Uh, so that was 2018. I wrote a story that uh, friends of Belichick told me that if he was to go anywhere, he would go to the Giants, which I already knew, but not to discount the possibility because there was dysfunction now in the Patriot organization with between Kraft and Brady and Belichick, that he could have been the one to replace hmm. um, uh, McAdoo when Shermer was hired. And I truly believe that. And I just think it got a little too complicated there. Uh, I believe the Patriots went on um, to get to the Super Bowl that year. That was the year that um, – I'm trying to think now. That might have been the year that they uh, lost to the Eagles, I believe. Um, but I, I think that that was a job he wanted. And if it wasn't quite so complicated, he might have taken it then, although – you know, he had gotten to the point. The Giants were at the point they had to kind of blow up the front, blow up the front office. And I'm not sure Bill wanted to walk into a situation where he had to start all over again like that. But I, I just want to set the record straight on one thing that you mentioned there. When Parcells, so the Giants beat the Bills in the Super Bowl, and about one or two days later, after that, is when Belichick got hired to be the coach of the Browns. So that was the end of January because Super Bowl was held a little bit earlier then. It wasn't until May 15th that Parcell stepped aside. Okay. So it wasn't two weeks. It wasn't two days. It wasn't even two months. It was a lot longer than that. But the fact is, and this is absolutely true, even if Parcells had stepped down before Belichick took the job in Cleveland, so say Parcells stepped down at the press conference the day after they beat the Bills, George Young was never, ever, ever going to hire Belichick to be the head coach. Wow. So Belichick could have still been available, and George would have hired Ray Hanley. Now, 
he might have even hired Tom Coughlin at that point, but Coughlin had already committed a month prior to going to Boston College. There was just something about the relationship between George Young and Bill Belichick that Bill uh, George didn't think that Bill had the personality to be a head coach. He thought he was a horrible communicator, none of which was entirely incorrect, <laughs> as we found out over the years. Um, but I, I think Bill knew that. And so where it wasn't known until May 15th that, that Parcells was leaving, Belichick knew way before then that George was never going to promote him. Wow. And um, George was actually saved the embarrassment of promoting Hanley over Belichick because there would have been tremendous backlash from the players, especially the defensive players, and certainly from the media who all knew what a great coach Belichick was. But so George didn't have to explain it to anybody because Belichick was gone. Parcells left. Um, obviously, they made a um, a horrible mistake with Hanley, who lasted two seasons and, you know, was way over his head. But, you know, by the time Parcells left, Belichick was already in Cleveland for three and a half months. Wow, man. That's a great, great story. What are you working on, Gary? I mean, you put so many great pieces out. I mean, what are you working on lately? Well, I, I did a podcast last season, Dan, on uh, on Brady. It was about his whole career, so it turned out to be pretty good timing. And, you know, people who are interested in that can go to Apple Podcasts and wherever you get your podcasts and, and listen to that. It's called The Goat, the Goat Tom Brady. I used a lot of the interviews that I had used for my Brady versus Manning book, but when you let people listen to the audio, it really brings the book to life. Um, I'm actually finishing up another book now. I wish I can tell you what the topic is. I don't mean to tease you or your viewers and listeners, but until the publisher announces it, they ask me not to say anything, but I promise football fans are really going to be into this. It's got some great stuff in it. The only thing I'll tell you, it's, it's a player's autobiography, and it's a very well-known player, and his story is fascinating. And there's a lot of explosive stuff in there that people will be interested in reading. I cannot wait to find out who this is. And I say this to people all the time because I played against Joe Montana and I'm a little bit biased. Gary, if we had today's rules where you couldn't touch the quarterbacks like they don't today, Joe Montana plays 25 years too, and he probably has seven Super Bowls too. So when I look at Montana, 138 quarterback rating, almost perfect, no INTs and in Super Bowl play. He's the Michael Jordan. He's 4-0. Never was ever really even challenged. Maybe that Cincinnati one, the first one in Detroit, right. they were challenged. But outside second, of that, the second one against the Bengals also. We threw yeah, the second one. Pass. You're right. They had to go on that 90 yard drive to exactly. get that to get that win. I mean, but do you agree? I mean, you, you could say Brady because he's got the resume, and I and I and I surrender the resume, and I get it. But if you just watch Joe play, you, I mean, you got to come away going. He's in the conversation. Well, it's it's one and one a. Yeah, and Brady. You know, Dan, I, I've seen, I saw so much of both players, and, and Bra I mean, Brady's still playing, but I, I saw every big game that Joe played. To me, Brady and Montana are the same player. Yeah. They're really the same player. Joe was more mobile outside the pocket. You know, he, he had great feet, but I just think their approach to the game is very similar. The respect they command um, in the huddle, in the locker room, their leadership ability the way they studied both very smart players, uh, neither one of them with a, um, an Elway arm, but strong enough certainly to make every throw. I think you put Joe in this era where not only can't you touch the quarterback, but you can't touch the receiver either. So you can't um, touch Jerry. Wait, so you can't touch Jerry Rice and you can't touch Joe Montana. I don't know, Gary. <laughs> I mean, Jerry Rice might have had 3,000 yards receiving in a season with these goals. And, 200 and Joe, catches. I'm not, yeah, I'm not even sure what the, Joe's the, the greatest number of touchdowns he threw in a season. I don't know that off the top of my head. I don't even I know if he threw 40 one year. I, I, don't, I don't know no, if I don't it was that high. No, he didn't. Right. I can guarantee you that if Montana played in the 2010s and the 2000, uh, you know, from 2000 to 2010 or 2010 to 2020, you add a minimum of 15 touchdowns to his maximum in his career. 
and that's what he would probably throw in as an average. Um, if Tom Brady was throwing 50 uh, and he had Randy Moss that year, can you imagine what Joe would have thrown the first few years that he played with Jerry Rice? And the same thing for Steve Young. Um, it, it, the numbers just would have been astronomical. That's why it's so hard to compare yeah. players from different eras because the rules have changed. But again, I, I put Brady number one only because of the seven Super Bowls. But if, if Joe played, and if Joe hadn't gotten hurt, remember, yeah. Joe got hurt twice the end of the 1990 uh, NFC Championship game, which eventually, I mean, that did cost him his job. Two and Giants, went, right? Jim Bird hurt him and also Leonard Marshall hurt him. Yeah, but Leonard Marshall was, they were getting killed in the game where Bird got uh, yeah. Montana and he got the concussion. But when Leonard Marshall hit him from behind and hurt his Sternum. wrist or his elbow, and, and then the following summer he had the elbow injury in training camp. And George Seifert was in love with Steve Young, so Joe never had a chance to get his job back. If that injury didn't happen in the NFC Championship game, then San Francisco possibly could have won that game. They lost it on that Roger Craig fumble after Joe got hurt, and then Mar Matt Barr hits the field goal. But, you know, the, the Niners might have held on to the lead if Joe was still in the game and might have won that third Super Bowl in a row. Uh, I doubt he would have lost those championship games to the Cowboys that Steve Young did. I mean, Joe could have easily had six championships. And uh, listen, he might have won one for Kansas City. Yeah, he was he close a, there. <laughs> he, he got he had him in the AFC Championship game his first year in Buffalo, and he got hurt in the third quarter when he got hit. I don't remember who hit him from the Bills, but they might have won that game. So, you know, again, it's circumstances, being in the right place at the right time. You give me Montana or Brady in a championship game, and I'm not going to say, boy, I wish I had the other guy. Let me, let me, I want to end, I want to end, I want to sneak one in on you here. Okay. Was that Super Bowl that Brady won last year his greatest achievement? Because he went to a different team and the pandemic and everything surrounding it. Is that his greatest Super Bowl achievement? No. And I know a lot of people have said that, Dan. I still say it's the first one because he was a nobody. Okay. Um, and he comes in. And they got so hot at the end of the year. And then the game-winning drive against the Rams, who um, were a great team. And I know the defense probably won that game. But, you know, they come on the field for that last drive. And, and John Madden is saying they should kneel on it and go to overtime. And instead, Brady moves them down the field effort effortlessly. And Vinatieri kicks, you know, the first of many great field goals of his career. Actually, it wasn't the first because he kicked several great Giants. ones in that snowball game. Um, but I, I think that was the greatest achievement for him. You, got, you have to remember last year, even though it was the pandemic, um, everybody's playing by the same rules. And I thought he had enough time in training camp to get used to his receivers. And they had a really, really good team around him. You know, people lose sight of that, that that was a really good Bucks team that just needed Tom Brady. And um, by the time I got to Thanksgiving, you know, they, they was I think they were seven and five. So yes. they were struggling a little bit. But then they won their last four regular season games and then won four games in the playoffs, three of them, you know, on the road and then the Super Bowl at home. I mean, that was tremendous. That's probably his second. Uh, but may, maybe the second is to come back against Atlanta in the Super Bowl. I <laughs> 28 mean, nothing, so many, he comes back, right? Yeah, he's had so many great moments, but um, – any of those moments, any quarterback would be happy to have it happen to him once. So, Absolutely, man. Two phenomenal players. Gary, it is always great catching up with you. I love the Giants story, too, on Belichick because I had heard that story from, you know, friends of mine in the organization. You know, um, I know the Mara family very well because of Robustelli and right. all of that. And they were telling me about, you know, one of the biggest regrets that, you know, they had the Mara family was that, they didn't do their due diligence on really trying to make sure they kept Bill there. And, you know, Bill's always kept his relationship with the Mara family, too, to this day. Yes. They're still very close. Absolutely. I know that John Mara holds uh, Belichick in extremely high regard. And, um, um, you know, they play each other in the preseason. I know they enjoy getting together. So, yeah. I'm not, you know, just to finish it up here, Dan, I don't know what they could have done differently. Yeah, I agree. If, if Parcells strung it out until the middle of May 
uh, there was a lot of rumors right after that Super Bowl that he was going to step aside, and he didn't. And even when he when he stepped down on that May fifteenth, he refused to say that it was health related, although right. that's exactly what it was. So I think something happened between that Super Bowl and May fifteenth that led Parcells to believe that he just couldn't coach anymore at that point. And I think if he, I think he was fond enough of Wellington Mara that if he knew he wasn't going to coach in 1991, if he knew that right away after that Super Bowl, he would not have waited until May 15th to step down. He had enough respect for, even though he didn't get along with George, he thought enough of Wellington Mara that he would not have waited and left the Giants in a difficult position. So I agreed. Like I said before, relating to something else, timing is everything, and it just didn't work out. And uh, I'm pretty sure the Giants, if they had the opportunity at any point that Pars- that Belichick was in New England, uh, if there was an opening there for to bring him back, they would have done that. But, you know, once Belichick got rolling with Brady, uh, there was never really a chance to bring him back. Absolutely. Gary, thank you so much for stepping in with us. Have a great weekend. Thank you so much. We'll be looking for the new book coming out with this uh, autobiography of this player. I can't wait. Thank you, Gary. Take care, Dan. Thanks for having me on. You got it, man. That is our friend Gary Myers. Yeah, man. Wow. So you hear that story that there was a time in 2018 that Bill was thinking of taking over the New York Giants because of all of that stuff that was going on between Garoppolo, Kraft, Belichick. Belichick was potentially in the conversation where he was talking to his agent on potentially leaving himself instead of Brady leaving. And I had said this on my Twitter. You can go back on my Twitter feed at the Ancilio show. I no question. Everybody who has been a giant fan has always known that Bill coveted that New York giants gig. He wanted that job so badly. And when Bill didn't resign right away. And now that we find out too, because Gary covered the, New York Giants for God so many years that George Young, who was the then general manager of the football team, was never going to give Belichick the job. That just shows you. And by the way, just to let you know, there's no question Art Modell told Bob Kraft the same thing. After Modell fired Bill Belichick, he called Bob Kraft up and said, This guy here does the worst press conferences. He doesn't sell the team. He's not very good around the public. He's not a guy in the community that's going to go out and sell your team for you. He's just not that guy. And Modell basically was trying to, you know, I guess persuade Robert Kraft not to hire Belichick. And Belichick was hired anyway because Bob Kraft saw something that was special inside of Belichick. And he just went like this. No, I'm going to hire the guy. I think there's something about the dude. He's got such a great resume. Parcel swears by him. You know, even how that whole thing ended in New York with the Jets, they had to make the trade and all that because, you know, he had accepted the job. Then he didn't accept the job. Really a crazy story there, too, that Bill was thinking about becoming the New York Giants head coach, I think, around 2018. So, hey, I want to thank everybody for coming aboard. Krause, great stuff. Cal, as usual, we thank you. Big Joe, we thank you. Have yourself a great weekend. Don't forget, if you missed any of the show, go to the Jacob Media channel. You can watch us, like us, share us. That's all we ask. Till Monday morning, 4 to 6 Eastern time, we shall see you on the flip side. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.